Hello, and welcome to Actively Speaking. I'm your host, Steve Blyberg. Join us each episode as we discuss current issues concerning capital markets and portfolio management from the perspective of an active manager. Welcome back to another episode of Actively Speaking. Uh, and my guest today is Kevin Hebner, our global strategist here at Epic. Hi, Kevin. Hey, Steve. Uh, and Kevin has a, a new paper that he's going to talk about with us called Reinventing Globalization. Why don't you kick us off, Kevin? Uh, tell us uh, at a high level what's, uh, what the paper is about. So the paper is about how we're rethinking globalization in light of a number of things. Clearly, COVID has made us realize that we're vulnerable. And we learned that through productive production equipment, through active pharmaceutical agreements, ingredients and things like that. Also, I think with the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, especially Europe's realized there's vulnerabilities with um, with trade for essential energy and things. And then I, I think more broadly with semiconductors and, and other items that are part of the global supply chains, as tensions between the United States and China have ratcheted up, we're re realizing that there are a lot of vulnerabilities uh, inherent in global supply chains. And, and also we're realizing to some extent that we've been providing our number one global strategic rival with a lot of goods that are, you know, certainly they have civilian purposes, but they also have military potential as well. Okay. So, and in this paper, there's basically two parts to this paper. In the first part, you talk kind of uh, a history of globalization, how it got started, say in the 80s, 90s, yeah. when it really took off, and, and then the, the factors that are causing it to reverse today, as, as, including the ones you just mentioned. Yeah. And the second part is is really interesting. I think it's perhaps the things that people don't think as much about. I mean, some of the stuff is obvious, like, okay, so we're moving manufacturing, either, you know, reshoring it to other countries or onshoring it back to the U.S. But there are implications that you talk about in the paper for what does this mean for things like, you know, labor share of, of income in, mm. in countries like the U.S., or what does it mean for the cost of capital? Talk about some of those uh, things that you think are perhaps less appreciated. And overall, I think very little of this is fully appreciated yet. And I, I don't think people have come to terms with how after this period of hyper-globalization we've had for 40 years, how this is reversing and, and how it's going to affect, I think at a fundamental level, a lot of things. You know, one part of it is a CapEx boom, a domestic CapEx boom, which certainly we will have, and we're starting to see already in semiconductors. Luckily, we've had in fossil fuel energy already, but also in green energy uh, in a host of areas. And that's going to be a challenge for the U.S. economy, which has been so focused on tech and building up the world of bits. When we actually have to build up the world of atoms, it's not something we're really prepared for. We don't have the right skill set from a labor supply perspective. We don't have the right regulatory environment. And that's going to be huge at the local, state, and federal level. There's all sorts of regulatory hurdles that, that make building anything incredibly time-consuming, but also very expensive. In terms of the labor share, with the combination of deglobalization, as well as the demographics and aging, and also decarbonization, we were certainly seeing increased labor demand. So the labor share is going to go up. As we've certainly seen over the last year, with very strong wage growth, I think we will be having higher wage growth over the next decade relative to what we experienced last decade. And uh, with that, the labor share of global profits, labor share of GDP, both increasing. And it has implications for inflation too, presumably. Yes. Yeah, so 
for example, the last decade, maybe a little bit before that, the chief issue for the Fed as well as the ECB, Bank of Japan, a host of, is that inflation has been too low. Going forward, I think it's going to be very different. I think with higher wage growth and a lot of pressure points through CapEx and the labor share, that is going to be much more difficult to keep inflation down towards a 2% target rather than trying to be pushing it up. So monetary policy is going to be very different. The four-decade downtrend we've seen in bond yields, mortgage rates, cost of capital for corporations, that's all going to be reversed and look quite different. So in some sense, it's marking a a regime change, which is certainly important for the economy. It's also extremely important for, I think, analyst PMs and and financial markets. Well, sure. I mean, um, uh, you know, I've I've written that one of the papers on our website is PE ratio, a user's manual, where we talk about the role that return, the spread you earn of your return on capital versus your cost of capital how that ultimately really is what drives the, the level of PE ratios for yeah. a business. And if, you know, presumably if cost of capital goes up, unless companies can also ratchet up the ROIC too to, to keep maintaining the spread, that does imply, this is important for investors, implies like lower PE ratios. Yeah, so certainly multiple compression relative to last decade. I think that's reasonable to expect. Um, Bill Priest likes to talk about a Southside report that came out about five years ago that had the line, when money is free, dreams are reality. It's pretty crazy. But in that type of environment, when money is free, you don't necessarily have to have sustainable free cash flow in the next couple of years. You can have stories about how at some point in the future we're going to make money. And I think I think this sort of environment is going to be quite challenging for venture capital and speculative tech that don't really see um, the possibility of having free cash flow on a sustainable basis for, for quite a few years to come. So I do think that looking at returns on vested capital relative to WAC, I, I think that will become a much more important focus for analysts and investors going forward. So you, you had a line in the paper, and I can't remember it exactly, but it was, it was um, I found it kind of amusing saying something about how Globalization was always beloved of economists, and, and they will kind of they they yeah. they will um, you know miss the, uh, the deglobalization to economists is bad because like oh it's less efficient, and 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 my feeling was um, that's true, but it's like it's not just economists who benefited from globalization. I mean, it was consumers, in, and not just in the form of well we had lower inflation because you know we we basically you know, replaced higher costs uh, labor with lower cost labor. And so prices of things went down. But, you know, what I like to focus on is, but what did that, what those lower prices enable consumers to do with the other money that they previously would have spent on certain goods? Now they had more money left over, which meant they could spend it on other things. And that creates new industries, you know, dynamism, you know, it's all the whole, um, you know, what's the Schumpeter phrase, a creative destruction. Mm. I, are you worried that we're going to, if we do kind of drive the price of certain things back up because, well, now we're going to be substituting higher cost labor for lower cost labor. It it takes away money that people in the past, that globalization benefited consumers, not just, my point is not just through directly through lower prices, but indirectly because the fact that they had additional income to spend on other things created new industries, new employment, jobs, you know, and are we going to lose some of that dynamism? Yeah. So in, in the paper, we, we mentioned that the, the two biggest beneficiaries of globalization were, first of all, China. And as globalization unwinds, 
China is likely to keep underperforming relative to other equity markets like um, the United States. A second is multinational companies benefit a lot. And we've seen that in margins and valuations over the last 30 years. And certainly some of that will rewind. We'll see their margins challenged in, in free cash flow generation challenge. The third aspect that, that you've raised, we actually don't talk about in the paper. So the notion that there has been consumer surplus from globalization, and certainly this is something beloved of uh, economists, certainly Schumpeter, but going uh, much, much uh, earlier than Schumpeter as well. And so, yes, we're going to see prices for a number of goods rise. One, one example that I've been thinking about is as we're starting to to reshore semiconductor fabrication, it's estimated that's going to cost 30% to 50% more to do that uh, domestically rather than do that in Taiwan or South Korea. So semiconductors aren't everything. So for example, your iPhone, it has a very advanced semiconductor. The price of that integrated circuit is going to go up and so the price of your iPhone and other types of smartphones is going to go up as some amount, but so will the prices that are paid for cars, which have hundreds of semiconductors in them and so on. And so certainly some of the consumer surplus from that will erode and that will that does destroy value. And ultimately, and I think this is also something that, that Bill Priest has emphasized, is globalization, it does create a lot of efficiency, it has created a lot of value for multinational corporates, for China, and also for consumers. And we are unwinding this, and we are in that process, in some sense, destroying a lot of value, or maybe it was just that there was this you know, relatively short ephemeral period in which we created a lot of the value, but that just wasn't sustainable. It was built in a particular time period, and there's no real reason to believe that time period could last for more than a couple decades. So you alluded to... Uh the desire to build more semiconductors here in the United States. Do we have, you know, uh, the, the labor force, uh, it seems, I, and there was a quote, I can't remember whether it was in this piece or another piece you circulated about. It's, in, you know, it's not just one type of job at these factories that we don't have enough of. It's basically every job. We don't have enough people who are trained to do these things. Yeah. So how do we get around that? Yeah, so we don't have enough people. Um, Taiwan also doesn't have enough people. Neither does South Korea. Singapore, other places that have uh, semiconductor fabrication. So it's it's a global issue, ah. but it's particularly an issue for the United States where, where we haven't done very much semiconductor fabrication. So we're going to need certainly PhDs and material sciences and electrical engineering and a, and a host of systems design and so on. And it takes decades to get sort of the thousands and thousands of people we need. But we also need people who are going to be doing shop floor work and particular skills for that. And it's the, the whole range of skills required for a semiconductor fabrication plant, which is really the, the most sophisticated, well, you could think of an integrated circuit is the most sophisticated product in the world. And we want to be producing those locally. And all the inputs to that, and there's thousands of inputs to building an integrated circuit, and there's thousands of skills required. So yeah, it's going to be a challenge. Um, the good thing is part of the CHIPS Act that was passed in August, there's a lot of money in that for training. But for example, for TSMC and other companies in Taiwan to get to where they are now, this process started in the mid-80s. So it does take decades to build up. Similarly with Korea, it started in the 80s and it started with both Taiwan and South Korea. There's been enormous government subsidies to get the companies to where they are now. 
and subsidies in lots of ways in terms of tax breaks, uh, uh, land deals, and then helping to build up the skilled workforce. So, and that's really, this does not happen quickly, right? And and it's, it's those subsidies, I believe, that if if I read you correctly, that's what accounts for that big cost differential of doing it in the U.S. versus those guys. It's, it's not so much oh that the labor is more expensive here; it's that we don't have the government subsidies that they have. Well, part of it is wages. So on average, wages in the U.S. are about twice those in South Korea or Taiwan. So part of it is wages. Uh, but it isn't really that labor-intensive an industry. And then Boston Consulting Group estimates that um, about half the cost differential is due to government subsidies. Mm. So those countries have decided that this is a critical industry and have a lot done a lot to build that up. And it looks like that was probably a sensible type of industrial policy. The the other thing, well, which we mentioned briefly, that I, I think is going to be an enormous challenge is the the changes in regulatory frameworks to allow these things to be built and also all the inputs to them to be built. And we know that the United States has uh, had a very difficult time building anything, including infrastructure uh, that's needed. Anytime something's built, it's, it's horrendously expensive income and takes far longer than it should. So I, I think all these elements are going to be big challenges, but it's surprising how little attention is being paid to the need to rethink the regulatory environment for building not just semiconductors, but also energy, including fossil fuel energy, uh, but green tech and, and all the different types of industries that need to be, we will be reshored over coming years and coming decades. Well, so perhaps then we could wrap up on another aspect of, of the papers, which talks about industrial policy. And because this does, uh, I think you make the point that this is kind of a rare situation where actually it's a pretty, there's kind of bipartisan agreement on this, isn't there? Yes. So you know, there actually are a couple areas where the two parties agree, but certainly in terms of national security issues, this is very important. There's been a couple of major speeches this year by uh, people in the Biden administration. The National Security Council has been pushing this very heavily. In the new year, we will have changes in House committees, and the people who look like they're beheading the key House committees believe at least as strongly um, on these issues as their, their predecessors did. So it, it is bipartisan, and I think the CHIPS Act certainly was a, a bipartisan piece of legislation, and that's important. Things like the October 7 export controls, there's certainly a lot of bipartisan support for that. By the end of the year, we will have a new executive order, it looks like, that will be addressing not just semiconductors, but artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and, and a couple areas uh, like that. And, and then some people are wondering, you know, what, the, what will this mean for TikTok, for something which is very broadly used? I don't think the National Security Council has a strong view on TikTok, but there are certainly a number of high-profile GOP members who think that TikTok is a danger. It could be used in some form of influential campaign and that we need either legislation or executive orders or other measures to, to deal with that. So I think it's sort of funny when we actually look at TikTok content to think that this could be viewed as a national security issue. But I think it, too, will come to the fore in um, the first half of next year. 
Okay. Well, thanks very much for joining me, Kevin. Uh, again, the, the white paper, uh, this could be up on our website shortly, if not already, by the time you hear this, is called Reinventing Globalization. Give it a read, and uh, we'll be back with another episode of Actively Speaking uh, soon. Thanks. Thank you. Remember to subscribe to Actively Speaking on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. You can find all of our previous episodes and additional content on our website, www.eipny.com. The information contained in this podcast is distributed for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice or a recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment product. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but not guaranteed. The information is accurate as of the date submitted, but is subject to change. Any performance information referenced represents past performance and is not indicative of future returns. Any projections, targets, or estimates in this presentation are forward-looking statements and are based on EPIC's research, analysis, and assumptions made by EPIC. There can be no assurances that such projections, targets, or estimates will occur, and the actual results may be materially different. Other events which were not taken into account in formulating such projections, targets, or estimates may occur and may significantly affect the returns or performance of any accounts and or funds managed by EPIC. To the extent this podcast contains information about specific companies or securities, including whether they are profitable or not, they are being provided as a means of illustrating our investment thesis. Each security discussed has been selected solely for this purpose and has not been selected on the basis of performance or any performance-related criteria. Past references to specific companies or securities are not a complete list of securities selected for clients, and not all securities selected for clients in the past year were profitable. The securities discussed herein do not represent an entire portfolio and, in the aggregate, may only represent a small percentage of a client's holdings. Clients' portfolios are actively managed, and securities discussed in this podcast may or may not be held in such portfolios at any given time.